Good morning. morning. Let's begin class of prayer this morning. Gracious Father in heaven, we thank you for this opportunity to come and study. We ask that your spirit will join us, enlighten our minds, transform our hearts. Let us uh, be powerful witnesses for your kingdom of love. We pray in your holy name. Amen. And before we get into the lesson, a couple announcements. One, I want to thank all of our donors this year who've uh, supported us in 2016. Your tax receipt uh, went out either by email or snail mail yesterday. So you will be getting that. Uh, but the Lord really blessed the ministry, and we thank you that you would consider us um, worthy of, of support. And uh, second announcement is... August 1, mark your calendar, August 1, 2017, Baker Books has announced that's the release date of the God-shaped heart. Um, how correctly understanding God's love transforms us. It will be some information you've heard, but expanded and new information. It's going to include in there the seven steps of moral decision-making that we have in our, our DVD set, um, but a whole lot more, and really uh, unpacking the distinction between how in our theology and our function that it really is the law of love that heals and restores and not uh, a imperialism and, and imposed rules that work. And uh, Baker uh, is a, uh, a very well-respected Christian publisher that uh, was quite positive about this perspective. I think you'll find it will be very effective in helping us advance this message uh, in the minds of those people who are still stuck in that kind of rules-oriented approach. So August 1, 2017. So today we're doing lesson number six in the quarterly, The Holy Spirit and Spirituality. And before we get into the, the actual lesson, I received a, num- a number of emails and a Facebook post regarding our lesson on Ananias and Sapphira, all expressing the same concern. And here is the post on our Facebook page, and I'm reading it because it's most public, and it is representative of all the emails I received as well. And here's what the Facebook post states. Dr. Jennings, really appreciate the focus on God's character and your willingness to challenge our thinking. Even though I agree generally with your conclusions, I fear you have undermined your credibility a bit in this lesson by selectively quoting Ellen White on the topic of Ananias and Sapphira. I noticed that you quoted Ellen White's beautiful statement about coercion having no place in God's government, and you rightly point out that the Bible does not say this was an act of punishment on God's part, not going beyond what is written, but you did not seem to be aware of Ellen White's own comments on Ananias and Sapphira's story. When your listeners read for themselves Ellen White's comments on Ananias and Sapphira uh, incident in Acts of the Apostles 75 and 76, in which she very clearly refers to the incident using the word punishment, they will have reason to believe you have an agenda and have selectively quoted to make your point. Just as you said regarding the lesson's author's comments about the divinity of the Holy Spirit based on this story, that you agree with the conclusions but don't find the argument compelling, I would say the same. I agree with your conclusions that God does not coerce, but I am not sure we need to excise the word punishment from our vocabulary in order to arrive there. And so I thought I would read the two paragraphs from Acts of the Apostles that are most pertinent to the concern that I received from so many people. And this is on page 75. From the stern punishment meted out to those perjurers, God would have us learn how deep is his hatred and contempt for all hypocrisy and deception. In pretending that they had given all, Ananias and Sapphira lied to the Holy Spirit, and as a result, they lost this life and the life that is to come. The same God who punished them today condemns all falsehood. Lying lips are an abomination to him. He declares that into his holy city there shall 
In no wise enter anything that defiles, neither whatsoever works abomination or makes a lie. Let truth-telling be held with no loose hand or uncertain grasp. Let it become a part of the life, playing fast and loose with the truth and dissembling to suit one's own selfish plans means shipwreck of faith. Stand, therefore, having your loins girded with truth. He who utters untruth sells his soul in a cheap market. His falsehoods may seem to serve in emergencies. He may thus seem to make a business advancements that he could not gain by fair dealing, but he finally reaches the place where he can trust no one, himself a falsifier. He has no confidence in the word of others. Notice what's happening here. Now, I'm going to read the second paragraph in just a second, but notice what she's described as the process. Himself a falsifier, he has no confidence in the word of others. Why? Because his falsifying is doing something within him. We'll keep on. In the case of Ananias and Sapphira, the sin of fraud against God was speedily punished. The same sin was often repeated in the uh, in the after history of the church and is committed by many in our time. But though it may not be attended by the visible manifestations of God's displeasure, it is no less heinous in his sight now as in the apostles' time. The warning has been given. God has clearly manifested his abhorrence to this sin, and all who give themselves up to hypocrisy and covetousness may be sure that they are destroying their own souls. Destroying their own souls. So how do you hear this quotation? Many emailed me, they were quite concerned at how I presented this. Look, she, this punishment, clearly, God punished them for their sin. We need to understand that God punishes. Do you hear it that way? What law lens are you hearing it through? Do you hear it as God sending out power that is originating in himself and sending it out to inflict punishment upon themselves? Or do you hear it as God surrendering them to their choice and thus ceasing the exercise of his power which had been holding the punishment of sin at bay? How do you hear it? Well, let's consider this passage from Romans. And then we'll read a couple other quotes from Elmite. This is from Romans 3, 21 through 25. This is how the NIV version now, but now a righteousness from God, apart from the law, has been made known to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference, for all have sinned and fallen short of God's glory, and are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came through Christ. God presented him as a sacrifice of atonement through faith in his blood. He did this to demonstrate his justice because in his forbearance, he left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. Beforehand. What's that mean? Before, before what? The sins committed beforehand. Before what? What's the context? Through faith in Jesus, who he presented as a sacrifice of atonement, he did this because he left the sins committed beforehand. Before what? Before Christ. That's right. The sins, according to Paul in Romans, before Christ, were left unpunished. Interesting. Did all the people in Old Testament times, other than Enoch and Elijah, die the first death? As far as we know. Was their death punishment? Not according to Paul. Sins committed beforehand were left unpunished. Paul says their sins were not punished. What do we understand that to mean? What about... An, an, what a, was the death of Ananias and Sapphira a different sort of death than Nadab and Abihu, 
where the fire came out from the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. Remember that death? Was their death different than that? Was it different than the people, the platoons that came to arrest Elijah, where fire came down from heaven and consumed those platoons? Was it different than the death of those people at Sodom and Gomorrah? Or was the death of Ananias and Sapphira the same death? First death. Well, Paul said all those that I just mentioned were not punishment for sin. Those sins remained unpunished. Well, no one's been judged yet by God. So God's judgment hasn't happened yet also. Ananias and Sapphira, the, the great white throne judgment hasn't yet occurred. So God is punished. So how do we understand Ellen White's comments? Do we just say, well, Ellen White said they're punished. God was punished in sin. Or do we think a little more deeply? Do we integrate her comments into what Scripture teaches, understanding cause and effect? So first death, is first death punishment for sin? Hmm. Then Ananias and Sapphira died first death, and Ellen White indicates that in her comment because she said they forfeited this life and the life to come in her comment. So she knew this was first death. Hmm. She calls it punishment. Scripture says first death is not punishment for sin. Let's, let's add some more quotes from Ellen White, and I will ask those who cling to the Acts of the Apostles quote as the supreme evidence of what's happening to ask themselves, are these next quotes from Ellen White equally truthful to that quote. Here's this quote. First Selective Messages 235. We are not to regard God as waiting to punish the sinner for his sin. The sinner brings the punishment upon himself. His own actions start a train of circumstance that bring the sure result. Every act of transgression reacts upon the sinner, works in him a change of character, and makes it more easy for him to transgress again. By choosing to sin, men separate themselves from God, cut themselves off from the channel of blessing, and the sure result is ruin and death. And then I received these two quotes by Ben Welliber uh, this week in an email. This is five testimonies, 120. This case is placed on record for our benefit. This is about Pharaoh's heart hardening. Just what took place in Pharaoh's heart will take place in every soul that neglects to cherish the light and walk properly in its rays. God destroys no one. The sinner destroys himself by his own impurity impenitence. When a person once neglects to heed the invitation, reproofs, and warnings of the Spirit of God, what was Ananias and Sapphira doing? Were they heeding the Spirit of God or were they hardening against the Spirit of God? Were they rejecting the Spirit of God? So when one neglects the heeds, the invitations, reproofs, the warnings of the Spirit of God, his conscience becomes seared. And the next time he is admonished, it will be more difficult to yield obedience than before. And thus, with every repetition, conscience is the voice of God heard amid the conflict of human passion. When it is resisted, the Spirit of God is grieved. And the Spirit of God, as we talked about in our class, is the connecting link that brings us life. And you cut yourself off. That's the quote here. We cut ourselves off from the source of blessing. And the sure result is ruin and death. And then, then this quote, 5 Testimonies 120. A little further down the same page. Next paragraph, in fact. We want all to understand how the soul is destroyed. Do you want to understand how the soul... This is what she, She's writing to tell you how the soul is destroyed. It is not that God sends out a decree that men shall not be saved. He does not throw a darkness before the eyes which cannot be penetrated. But man at first resists a motion of the Spirit of God. And having once resisted, it is less difficult to do so the second time, less the third, and far less the fourth. Then comes the harvest to be reaped from the seed of unbelief and resistance. Oh, what a harvest of sinful indulgences is preparing for the sickle. 
Why is the soul destroyed? Because God uses power to inflict the destruction and punishment? Or because by the choice of the sinner, the impenitent, resisting the Spirit of God, the Spirit is slowly grieved and God stops using his power. And then what happens? Is it unreasonable then to suggest that Ananias and Sapphira, this was not Ananias and Sapphira's first dishonest business dealing? Of course. Yes, this is a culmination. Yeah, and right. Paul, in the scripture, Paul said, why have you grieved the Holy Spirit? You don't grieve him with one, with one act. It deals perfectly with what we just read there. So we, do we recognize the balance in all these statements? So I say, those who like the Acts of the Apostle quote, do you balance it with Romans? Do you balance it with these quotes I just read and say, okay, how do we understand it? Recognizing the balance is the punishment that sin brings when God stops intervening to hold sin at bay and surrenders the sinner to their choice, which in the Bible is known as God's wrath. wrath. That's his wrath, letting them go. Yes? In Isaiah nine eighteen, surely wickedness burns like a fire. It consumes briars and thorns. It sets the forest thickets ablaze so that it rolls upward in a column of smoke. By the wrath of the Lord Almighty, the land will be scorched and the people will be fuel for the fire. No one will spare his brother. So there it is. God's wrath is letting people experience their decision to be separate from him. Yes. Online. So Alfredo asked his pastor who killed Ananias and Sapphira. The answer from the pastor was Peter. Uh, the way how Peter approached the situation, it was Peter who killed them. That's interesting. It's not also reading into what the scripture does not say. I think, so if you put these pieces together, Ananias and the spire experienced God's wrath of letting them go because of their choice, and they reap what happens when the source of life lets go. They died the first death, not the second. But the method was not merely of wearing out of their bodies from old age, but the accelerated or speedy, immediate result of separation from God, Ellen White's the speedy manifestation. It happened now, not at the end of their life. Why? Because God permitted it to happen now. He, he said, this is what you're going to do. I'm going to surrender you then to your choice. This is what sin does, which it separates from God, and which is what we described using different words in our lesson a few weeks ago on Ananias and Sapphira. So God punished them by, by what? What did God actually do? He stopped his interventions that were holding sin at bay in their lives. He surrendered them to their choice to be completely deviant from his design laws for life. This is exactly what we described. So I want, now I want to commend and thank all those who found the Acts of the Apostles quote and emailed us or posted on our Facebook page when you read that quote and you thought it was somehow different than what we were teaching, thank you for emailing us, giving us time to answer and to expand and explain. Excellent. That's exactly what the Bible teaches should happen. But now I want to point out a process that happened here. Typically when I present something like I did a few weeks ago on Ananias and Sapphira, and those here remember how we presented that, that sounds a little different than the traditional view, God punishing, I go to great lengths to find quotes like the Acts of the Apostle quote where Ellen White says it this way and show the, contra the apparent superficial contradiction and then show the harmony that we just did here, how it really is all harmonious. I go to great lengths to do that. This particular time I didn't do that. I left it. And some people seem to have difficulty reconciling that on their own, thinking it through, looking at the evidences, 
weighing it out, comparing Scripture with, with, with Scripture and Ellen White's writings with her other writings. But these are the types of situations that each of us need to be faced with in order for us to practice thinking through and coming to the answers. It's like a math teacher who shows how to work a problem, shows you how to work the problem, but then leaves you with problems to work on your own. Because if you only see the math teacher work the problem, you don't get the experience of struggling to work the problem and then learning how to do it yourself. And so I hope those who emailed me and posted on the Facebook page when they found this apparent contradiction didn't stop over the last two weeks and say, oh, Jenny's got that one wrong, not very credible, oh, he's wrong because she said this. I hope when they go, well, that doesn't seem to add up with what he said. What does that mean? I hope for the last several weeks you've been searching other writings, thinking it through, weighing it out with design law, thinking about those quotes of coercion, what can't be inflicted, and hopefully you've been wrestling it to come to an answer. And if, you, and if you didn't, and you couldn't, that's great. You brought, it, you brought it, and we unpacked it for you. But it's important that we wrestle these things out for ourselves, isn't it? Most definitely. Yes, this is how we learn to do this. So again, excellent for bringing it. Excellent for not just concluding. I hope, though, when you find these things, you'll think and wrestle them out. And then if you can't see how they connect, then do bring them in, and we'll unpack them. Yes? So it sort of reminds me of those pictures where you see one thing, but the more you stare at it, the more you realize there's a there's a... Uh, a whole different picture behind there. You know, I have a friend who has one that has, looks like forests and stuff, and the more you look at it, it's a whole bunch of wolves. You know, yep, but yep, you yep. have to really look at it to find that. And this is exactly why people ask, well, why doesn't the Bible just say it plainly? Why doesn't it just say it plainly? For this very reason. Why doesn't the math book, when you get a problem, have all the answers right there? Why aren't the answers just right next to the problems? Why are they in a back and a key? Sometimes they're not even a key. You can't even look in the key to get them. Why? Because it's the only way you actually learn how to do math is to not have the answers just told to you. And God doesn't want you just to know the answer. He wants you to know how to arrive at the answer. And that's very important because every individual has a different walk with God. And, um, and for some, it's, it's, it, it takes longer to soak things in. So that, so that when you and your local congregation are out on the street and somebody throws a quote like that at you... If you know how to arrive at the answer rather than just what the answer is. See, I know the answer. Question number 14, answer is this. Okay, how did you get there? I think the answer is not that. I think the answer is wrong. Okay, and here's how I worked it out. If you don't know how you arrived at the answer, you won't be able to see how completely convoluted their math work is. You have to know how they got the answer in order to show. Yeah. So you may know the answer, and this is many Christians. They, they might even have the right theological answer. But if they don't know how and why it's right, then they can easily be confused by somebody who brings a theological argument that seems complex that they can't figure out and they can be led astray. So again, I want to commend that people, but really wrestle these things out. And, and do email us when you have the, the, the... I didn't say this to stop people from emailing when there's questions. Yes. But I would say some of the more traditional Christian doctrines are antagonistic against that. They do not want you wrestling it out. That's correct. If you dig into the antithetical thinking, it doesn't make sense. That's correct. They just want you to regurgitate. That's correct. Yes. I just You need to know the principle behind how to find the answer. So yes. You, understand, you can know how to find it. So understanding design law 
how God has actually constructed reality to work, law of love, law of liberty, law of uh, exertion, law of worship, how these laws work, know that God never violates his own character of love, his methods of how reality is constructed, then when you have some of these things that seem to be violations, you know there must be some other way to understand that, that I'm not quite grasping yet. Am I seeing that through the way human law works? A system of rules that if you break the rules, then, then we've got to use power to coerce and punish. God doesn't work that way. It may look like he does, but it's something else going on. We've described this many times. Let's jump into the lesson. The Holy Spirit and living a holy life. First paragraph says, It's easy to become insensitive to the holiness of God and not to think much about God's revealed hatred of sin and evil. This idea of hatred of sin and evil, I want to make clear why God hates sin and evil. He hates sin and evil like a doctor hates disease. Do doctors hate disease? Yes, why? Because they destroy health and kill patients. But do doctors hate patients? Even terminal patients. Do they hate terminal patients? They do not. God does not hate his children. Even those who have rejected his remedy and are dying in sin, he does not hate them. He hates the rejection of his offer to heal them. He hates that. He hates the condition which is leading and and destroying them and eating them from the inside out. But he doesn't hate them. And it's important to say, as many Christians feel, if you don't accept Jesus, God hates you. You know he doesn't. He loves you, but he hates what's happening to you. It's a big distinction. Second paragraph. Holiness, however, is a crucial theme in the Bible. The pursuit of holiness to become loving and pure like Jesus should be a priority for every Christian. We are rightly appalled by the I am holier than you attitude. But at the same time, we can easily forget what it means to live a pure and sanctified life. So I thought maybe we should define what is holiness. And holiness simply means something that's holy, so we need to define what is holy. And I looked up in the dictionary the definition of holy, and there's seven definitions in the dictionary for holy. And these are the seven definitions. One, specialized, specially recognized or declared sacred by religious use or authority. Consecrated, holy ground. Two, dedicated or devoted to the service of God, the church, or religion, a holy man. Three, saintly, godly, pious, devout, a holy life. Four, having a spiritually pure quality, a holy love. Five, entitled to worship or veneration as as or as if sacred, a holy relic. Religious, holy rites. Inspiring awe, fear, grave distress. The director when angry is a holy terror. So as I reviewed these definitions and thought them through, only one out of the seven actually approximates the core of holiness. The other six can easily be counterfeited and fraudulent. So let's let's go through those and show you that. Number one, specially recognized as or declared sacred by religious use or authority consecrated. Can Satan worshipers declare certain temples or worship sites to be holy? And can such places be set aside for religious use? Does setting it aside for religious use make it holy? No, it does not. Dedicated or devoted to the service of God, the church, or religion, a holy man. Can a cult priest or priestess be set aside for holy to, for service to their God, their church, their cult, their religion? Does that make him or her holy? It does not. Suicide bomber. Yeah, suicide bomber. Saintly, godly, pious, devout, a holy life. Can a person live a devout pious, and godly, defined by functioning how their God functions, 
That's what godly is defined by their God. And still burn people at the stake. Does such a life mean a person is holy? No, it does not. Entitled to worship or veneration as if sacred. If something is worshipped and considered worthy of veneration, does that make it holy? Are there many things that are worshipped by people that are unholy things to worship? Yeah. Religious holy rites. Are religious rites holy because they are religious rites? Or are there many religious rites that are actually evil because they obstruct the truth about God? Inspiring fear, awe, grave distress. Does the truth about God bring fear and grave distress? Or is it sin which brings fear and great distress? So if a person is genuinely holy, will they have terror, dread, and great distress of God? Or joy and relief as they encounter God? The only definition, in my opinion, of all those seven, which approximates true holiness, was definition number four, which is having a spiritually pure quality, a holy love. What is the core to this definition? The core, and I'm going to tell you, when you if you get confused about what holiness is, I'm going to give you a word, a word substitution. If you substitute this word, it will, I think, make it very clear for you and demystify it, because I think holiness is mystical to most people. They don't have any idea what it means, but it's something that's almost magical. And if we touch something that's holy, then somehow, you know, you know, you know what I'm saying? It's, it's mystical to morphous. It's scary, but it's not substitute the word healthiness where healthiness means God's perfect spiritual design for his creation. That's what healthiness means as God designed his universe to function ultimate total and eternal healthiness. Mental, spiritual, characterological healthiness. To be Christ-like in heart, mind, and character. This is healthiness as God designed it. When you think about healthiness, that's not nearly as scary, is it? Hmm. Can we make ourselves spiritually healthy? Can we make ourselves holy? No. Can God make us spiritually healthy? Can God make us holy? Yes. Why is the holier-than-thou attitude so offensive? Because, if you understand what I've just described, it's like sickness, pride, arrogance. That's sickness. That's against holiness. That's the opposite of God's character of love. Pride, arrogance, actually promoting itself as healthiness. It would be like a person with fever and chills going around and condemning anybody who didn't have fever and chills. That's what it would be like. And it's offensive, especially if the institution uh, validates the fever and chills as the goal. Third paragraph. God's holiness, God's love and his holiness inseparably belong together. Without God's holiness, his love would be in danger of sentimentalism. Without his love, God's holiness would be stern and unapproachable. Both attributes, his love and his holiness, are foundational to his nature. Thank you! I was wondering if anybody would recoil against this. Most Christians, I suspect, when they read this, go, Amen. There's a lie built in here. It's a subtle one, but there's a lie. They're introducing a split in God's character. A false idea trying to make it sound good. 
Like fever and chills are good. This is a false idea here. It is the same process as the holier-than-now attitude, making sickness sound like it's right. The reason this happens is the fundamental misunderstanding of God's law as imposed, functioning like human rules. And thus, the misunderstanding of holiness is intolerance for rule-breaking. This is what holiness is. They present God's holiness as strict enforcement of rules that without God's balancing it with love would become cruel. That's what they mean. Yes. It's also a misunderstanding of what love truly is. Correct. It misunderstands both sides. Love is compassion rather than design protocols for how reality is built. Thus we cannot, the problem, this problem resolves when we come back to design law. That life only exists and operates upon the protocols that God has constructed it to operate on, which are always an expression of his character. We cannot be reconciled to God while living out of harmony with his design. More than, any more than an organ, like a kidney, can be transplanted into a body, a host, that it is not compatible with. Why? What will happen if you put an organ into a body that doesn't accept it? The body will reject it. It's not harmonious. Okay? We cannot be reconciled into the body. Remember the church is the body, right? We can, this is a metaphor. We, we cannot be reconciled to Christ while we have active principles that are out of harmony with how he's constructed life to work, operating in our characters. It doesn't work. The organ cannot survive in a host that rejects it. We cannot survive in a universe where we are out of harmony with how Life is built to operate. So love is holiness. Love is holiness, which is healthiness. And there is no other way to live in God's universe. Not one aspect of God's law, design protocols, can be changed without destroying his creation. See, God can't change gravity without the universe as we know it collapsing. You can't change the nuclear force that holds the nuclei together in atoms without the universe. We know it collapsing. He can't change his law without destroying his creation. His law is our constants. Thus God is working through Christ to change sinners to be back in harmony with his law. Not to change the law or appease the law or change his father's attitude. Sunday's first paragraph, it says, It's popular to emphasize God's love while ignoring his holiness. See, this is what we, that's why I'm bringing this up next, because this is what they would say. Well, Jennings, yeah, he emphasizes the love, but he ignores the holiness. Well, God is love. The idea of holiness is more often connected with the name of God in the Bible than any other attribute. Uh, holiness is descri- describes the purity and moral perfection of his nature. God's holiness means that he is perfectly good and completely free from evil. God's holiness is the perfection of all his other attributes. This paragraph really saddens me. Because it shows how deep the infection of the false law has penetrated Christianity and Christian thought. They're actually trying to draw a contrast between God's love and his character of love and his holiness. They're trying to separate the two. But let's examine their concerns and investigate their claims. They give specific elements here, and let's investigate those. They say God's holiness is connected with his name. Let's look at that one first. In the Bible, what is the significance of a name? Why was Jacob's name changed to Israel? Because his character changed. So his name changed. The name means character. 
So then what would it mean if God's holiness is connected with his name? Well, what is the core of God's character? God is love. love. So this is out of Christian Education, page 75. Christ declares the mission that he had in coming to earth. He said in his last public prayer, O righteous Father, the world has not known you, but I have known you, and these have known you uh, that you sent me. And I have declared unto them your name, and will declare it, that the love wherewith you have loved me may be in them and I in them. When Moses asked the Lord to show him his glory, the Lord said, I will make all my goodness to pass before you. And the Lord passed before him and proclaimed the Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abundant in goodness, mercy and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, and that by no means will clear the guilty. And Moses made haste and bowed his head to the earth and worshipped. When we are able to comprehend the character of God as did Moses, we shall... Also make haste to bow in adoration and praise. Jesus contemplated nothing less that the love wherein, wherewith thou hast loved me should be in the hearts of his children, that they might impart the knowledge of God to others. What is the core to his name? His character of love. So we see that the idea of his holiness being tied to his name is directly meaning that it's tied to his character of love. There's no separation. The lesson states that holiness describes purity and moral perfection. What is the standard of purity and moral perfection? What do we measure purity and moral perfection by? Some might say his law, right? Which is, as you've already went to the, to the cut to the chase, it's a living law. And so we read out of um, Christ Triumphant, page 339. And then Christ's object lessons, 305. Christ came to our world to represent the character of God as it is represented in his holy law. For his law is a transcript of his character. Christ, now get these words and, and, and think through the meaning. Christ was both the law and the gospel. Christ was both the law and the gospel. If Christ was the law, what kind of law is, is, was he? What kind of law is it? Is it a list of rules? Or it's a living, functional protocol upon which life is constructed. If he's the law, that's, he's a living law, and that's what the law is. It's the law of life, and this is what we see in the life of Christ, the principles of love. And then Christ's object lessons, quote, In setting aside the law of God, men know not what they are doing. God's law is a transcript of his character. It embodies the principles of his kingdom. He refuses to accept these principles as placing himself outside the channel where God's blessings flow. What's, what's being described? What kind of law again? What happens if we refuse the law? We place ourselves outside the... It's like, I refuse oxygen. I tie a plastic bag over my head and I hoard my carbon dioxide. I'm refusing the law of respiration. I will not live in harmony with it. I'm placing myself outside the principles upon which the blessings of life flow. That's what is being described. That's what sin does. It's like the hand cutting itself off from the body. So what is the standard of purity and perfection? What is the standard? God's law, which is an expression of his character of love. Again, no separation. And then the last one. Holiness means completely free from evil. What is evil at its core? Selfishness. Selfishness. So education, page 154. Unselfishness 
The principle of God's kingdom is the principle that Satan hates. Its very existence he denies. From the beginning of the great controversy, he has endeavored to prove God's principles of of action to be selfish. And he deals in the same way with all who serve God. To disprove Satan's claim is the work of Christ and all who bear his name. And then 7 Manuscript Release, page 232. All sin is selfishness. Satan's first sin was a manifestation of selfishness. He sought to grasp power and to exalt self. The sowing of seeds of selfishness in the human heart was the first result of the entrance of sin into the world. God desires everyone to understand the evil of selfishness and to cooperate with him in guarding the human family against his terrible deceptive power. The design of the gospel is to confront this evil by means of remedial missionary work and to destroy its destructive power by establishing enterprises of benevolence, giving, compassion, other-centeredness. As a remedy, I love that, a remedy for the terrible consequence into which selfishness led the human race, God gave his only begotten son. Wait, as a legal payment to pay the legal debt which we owe the heavenly tribunal? No, as a remedy to the terrible consequence into which selfishness led the human race, God gave his only begotten son to die for mankind. How could he give more? In this gift he gave himself. I and my father are one, Christ said. By the gift of his son, God has made it possible for man to be redeemed and restored to oneness with him. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him should have everlasting life. Love is the great principle that actuates unfallen beings. With amazement, the angels behold the indifference of those who have light and knowledge manifested toward the unsaved. The heavenly hosts are filled with an intense desire to work through human agencies to restore man to the image of God. They are ready to wait to do, and waiting to do this work. The combined power of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost is pledged to uplift man from his fallen state. Every attribute, every power of divinity has been placed at the command, at the command of those who unite with the Savior in winning men to God. Oh, that all would appreciate the truth as it is in Jesus. Oh, that all would love God in return for the love wherewith he has loved them. Sin has extinguished the love that God placed in man's heart. The work of the church is to rekindle this love. What is evil? selfishness. And what is the opposite of selfishness? I mean, there's no evil in God. It is love. And so again, we find no distinction between holiness and God's character of love. It is a corruption that has entered Christianity to try and teach that this idea of holiness is somehow different than God's character of love. Holiness is stern intolerance for breaking the rules where love is a compassionate benevolence. We have the loving Savior dying to pay off the Holy Father who cannot tolerate evil and wickedness and must punish sin. This is how it's viewed, and it's a lie. It's a corruption. Do you think we rekindle love in the hearts of people when we teach legal theologies or ideas that separate God's love from his holiness? No, we don't. We undermine the rekindling of love in the heart because we incite fear. God becomes someone that we must be protected from. God must be someone that's so so holy and so righteous and so perfect that, that it's terrifying and we need to be shielded from him. That doesn't rekindle love. It incites fear. And that is what most Christians are doing. And most Christian theologies, if you look at functionally what they're doing, most of them are hiding you or protecting you from God. Covering you with a robe of righteousness so the Father can't see you. Erasing your sins out of the book so the Father can't punish you. Paying the penalty and pleading the blood to the Father to hold back his wrath. 
hiding and protecting from God because he's holy and he must punish. This is a corruption of what true holiness is. True holiness is purity, God's character of love. You think Christianity is making holiness synonymous with the just or justice? Because we see the same thing with, well, God is love, but he's also just. Yep, yep, it's, it's, there's, a, there's a connection between there's that. There's a parallel there, and I wonder if Christianity is, is trying to take the steps to move away from the justice argument and, and move toward a holy argument. It's the same specious argument. It is. Just substituting different words. Next, our, next paragraph says, His power is holy power. His mercy is holy mercy. His wisdom is holy wisdom. His love is holy love. In this sense, holiness is the most intimately divine word uh, of all because it has to do with the very nature of God. To deny the purity of God's holy being is perhaps worse than denying his mere existence. The latter makes him non-existence. The former, an unlovely, even detestable God. Has God been presented by Christians, by Christianity, as an unloving and detestable being? Yes. Yes. I won't list some of the ways we've done that many times. We'll move on. But yes, this very thing is the problem. And in fact, I would suggest this idea of separating holiness from his character of love is part of the ways they incite detestable constructs of God. Fourth paragraph. God's holiness means that he is separated from sin and entirely devoted to seeking uh, the good that he uh, represents in himself. In other words, holiness denotes a relational quality as well as a moral one. It encompasses separation from sin and complete devotion to God's glory. You think about what this means. If they are saying that there is no evil, sinfulness, or selfishness in God, that God exists free of all sinfulness, then they are absolutely true. Absolutely true. That's what it means. That's true. But if they are saying that, if they mean that God is so holy that he will not tolerate sin in his presence, and in fact cannot tolerate sin in his presence, is such an idea true? Where does sin begin? With Lucifer, who functioned in God's presence. He tolerated, he tolerated sin in his presence. How about after Adam and Eve sinned, who pursued them and had a face-to-face conversation with them in the garden? God did. There was sin in his presence. He tolerates. Now, this is an important distinction because this idea that sin cannot occur or exist in God's presence led to theological constructs that is quite wrong. The idea that God's holiness cannot exist in the presence of sin, so Jesus cannot be born of a sinful woman, therefore Mary had to be sinless, so the holy perfection of Jesus could be incarnate. If this were true, there's multiple serious problems. Number one, God has a way to make human beings holy without Jesus, because Mary was somehow sinless without Jesus. That's a real, real undercut to the whole plan of salvation. Number two, Jesus was not born to the fallen human species, but to a different human species that was not descended from Adam and not fallen into sin if he was born to a sinless Mary. Three, Jesus doesn't know what it's like to be tempted in every way just like we are because he didn't partake of a humanity that tempts him like we're tempted. Four, Jesus' work on earth could not have been to eradicate the infection of sin and destroy the carnal nature and perfect humanity if he was born to a sinless mother. So five, the only purpose for his birth, if born to a sinless mother, and and his purpose on earth, if born to a sinless mother, was to be executed as a legal payment to an offended God to pay for our sins. And it perpetuates the false imperial law construct, the human law construct. Fortunately, the idea that sin cannot exist in God's presence is false, 
And the teaching that Mary was sinless is also false. And we can rejoice that we have a Savior who was born part of this fallen humanity and fixed what Adam's sin did to this creation. He fixed it. He healed it. Monday's lesson. That point that you made is a source of a tremendous conflict and tremendous passion in theological circles. Yes, it is. You start talking about the nature of Jesus relating to the birth through Mary, and you really get into a route. And it, and, it's, and it goes back to the type of law. If we understand design law, it, what, you can only have that view under an imposed law construct. If you have design law construct, then you understand that God could only actually fix humanity by becoming part of this humanity. But if it's legal in nature, then he didn't actually have to become part of it. He could just step in in a legal declared way and do it. Okay? Monday's lesson. Second paragraph. It says, Holiness is both God's gift and his command. Hence, we should pray for it and seek to manifest it daily. Holiness is the fruit of the Spirit displayed in our lives as we walk by the Spirit with Christ every day. Holiness, in one word, is Christ-likeness. It means belonging to Jesus and living as a child in loving obedience and commitment, being more and more conformed to his likeness. The basic meaning associated with the concept of holiness signifies a state of being separated, being set aside for special service to God. On the other hand, holiness also signifies an intrinsic moral and spiritual quality, namely that of being righteous and pure before God. Both aspects need to be kept together. What do you hear when you hear that holiness is a command? What happens in your mind and heart? It's external. How is it processed? What constructs arise? What emotions are generated? You're commanded. Be ye therefore holy even as your Father in heaven is holy, or be therefore perfect, as your Father in heaven is perfect. What law lens are you hearing it through? But does the tension evaporate instantly when you substitute holiness with the word healthiness? Where healthiness, again, means spiritual healthiness. God's command to be high, command you to be healthy, is his plan, his prescription, his directions, his expectations, his goals for restoration, perfect healing and restoration to Christ's likeness. That's what it means. So this is out of AG. What's the abbreviation for AG? Um, I'll think of it. Amazing Grace. Amazing Grace, page 120. No man receives holiness as a birthright or as a gift from another human being. Holiness is the gift of God through Christ. Those who re- Now, no- notice what's going to be described here, holiness. What do you think comes as she unpacks what holiness is? Remember, I've, I've offered you to sub- substitute the word healthiness for it, right? So healthiness is a gift from God through Christ. Well, here we go. Holiness is a gift of God through Christ. Those who receive the Savior become sons of God. They are his spiritual children, born again, renewed in righteousness and true holiness, Their minds are changed. With clearer vision, they behold eternal realities. They are adopted into God's family. They become conformed to his likeness, changed by his spirit from glory to glory. From cherishing supreme love for self, they come to cherish supreme love for God and Christ. What do you hear is happening here? What does it mean to be holy? Is it not spiritual healthiness? Is it not renewal and righteousness? Is it not recreation in the inner man? Is it not being reborn? That's what's all being described. Spiritual healthiness and reconstruction and recreation. Wow, that's cool. And who's doing the work to to restore and recreate us? Is it our work to do? 
No, it's ours to accept and participate in. It's Christ to do. Yes. I think that's where a lot of angst in churches come from, is they feel like God gives these commands, be perfect, be holy, whatever, and yet for us, that's an unattainable goal because we try to, it, it puts us in a real twist because, you know, he says be perfect, and yet every day we fail on our own, and, and but yet God expects that, and we keep hoping and praying, you know, working, climbing, clawing. Our- That's because they have the wrong definition of perfection. They're using perfection under imposed law. And under imposed law, it's all about behavior. Under design law, it's all about the motive of the heart. Thus Rahab lied in faith and is recognized as being righteous in Hebrews. It wasn't about the lying. We just, we just read about how lying is detestable. How God punishes all lying. We read this very, very strong quote. Yet Rahab lies and she's found in the hall of faith. How can that be? Because she wasn't lying to protect herself. It wasn't an act of selfishness. All sin is selfishness. Her lie at that moment was an act of selflessness. She lied to protect others and put her life on the line, was willing to sacrifice her life, her livelihood, her resources. She would have been considered a traitor. To put it in context of what the mindset of her government would have been, it would have been like you hiding a Taliban terrorist here in America and lying to the homeland security. That's what it would have been like. These, These people were coming to destroy her nation, weren't they? But she lied when they knocked on the door. But it wasn't an act of selfishness. Now, you never see in Scripture where God says, well, lied Rahab. (laughs) You never see that. He never commends the lying. He commends the motive, the selflessness. It was immaturity. It was childishness on her part. But it was still an act of love. And he recognizes the action. This is design law stuff. The seeds of the new heart are starting to take root in her. It hasn't grown to the, for, the mature full plant, but the new motives are taking root. This is beautiful. God recognizes it. That's why she's there. You can only get to these truths why we reject the imposed law contract. So perfection is not about performance. It's about a perfect trust relationship with God that we trust him and we surrender our lives and our futures into his hands. The outcomes are in your hands, Lord. I'm not going to try and control how the world turns out or how I turn out or how my kids turn out. I'm going to govern myself in harmony with your principles and trust you with outcomes. The just shall live by faith. Those who are just, doing in governance of self what they understand is right, trust God, live by faith with how life turns out. And that can happen in a short time, like the thief on the cross was reviling him with the other thief at the very beginning. And just hours later... He, was, he turned his whole approach to God around and said, you know, save me. And, and Jesus said, you, you will be in heaven. He trusted him. Yes. There you go. That's it. Abraham trusted God and was recognized as righteous. Why? Because, and, and, and under the imperial model, because when he trusted God, God declared him to be righteous even though he's not. Under design law model, then we understand the natural state of the human heart, as in Romans, it says, our natural heart is enmity to God. Our natural heart is distrusting and fear-ridden and runs from him as Adam and Eve were doing. That's our natural sinful heart. Abraham, though, had something change where his natural enmity heart changed and he trusted God. Therefore, he was recognized as having been changed from distrust to trust, we call that his heart was set right with God. He had a right heart with God. And setting something right is called justify. We put it right. We set it right. He was justified in heart, in mind, in character when he trusted God. It was an actual reality, not a legal declaration. 
That legal declaration stuff is such a fraud. It makes me so sick. It holds so many Christians in, 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 in captivity of a powerless Christianity where they have no victory in their lives. I like your analogy of holiness being healthiness because healthiness doesn't come easily sometimes. In fact, the Bible talks about no discipline is pleasant, it's painful, but it brings a harvest of righteousness and peace. So here's another idea that comes up along these lines. In the bottom paragraph, it says, God's acceptance of each believer is perfect from the beginning, yet our growth in sanctification is a lifelong process and always needs to be extended further so that we become more and more transformed into unblemished beings of uh, unblemished image of him who saved us. And this is the classic idea that sanctification is the work of a lifetime. That means the antediluvians had a much big advantage over us because they had a much longer life and that we get sanctified by aging. <laughs> yeah, it worked well for them. Well, that, that, but that, that's the idea that's, that, that's, that's often communicated. It's a line. You should just, when you got under healthiness, you should see sanctification is the work of a lifetime in the same way that eating is the work of a lifetime. Eating is the work of a lifetime. Think that through. If you want to live and stay healthy, you will eat your entire life. However... Even though you're eating the whole, your whole life because you need continued sustenance, continued nurturing, you are not waiting to be mature your entire life. You have grown and you've achieved maturity long before your life ends, but you still must eat every day. We are to grow up in Jesus Christ and become spiritually mature, but our souls need spiritual nurturance. We must ingest, the, drink the blood and eat the flesh metaphorically, partake of Jesus every day. It's a work of a lifetime to internalize Christ every day. That doesn't mean we're still waiting to be matured. It's a corruption. It's a lie that gets, I'll never be sanctified. I'll never be set right. It's a work of a lifetime. Maybe just before I die, I'll finally arrive. No. The green section states there is a tension between holy, there's a tension between being holy and yet having to pursue holiness. Again, is there? Is there, is there a tension between being healthy and having to pursue healthiness. There's no tension there. There's a relationship. There's not tension. They're not opposed. They're not contradictory. They're completely connected, completely harmonious. Yeah. Life is like a box of chocolates. That may not be true. (laughs) Okay, so I'm going to jump to Wednesday's lesson. Because there's a point I think we're going to close on. We're getting close to the end. Uh, First paragraph, Wednesday's lesson. We know that God calls us to keep his law. The question arises, though, why should we keep his law if we cannot be saved by it? The answer is found in the idea of holiness. Okay. Do you see the corruption again? The corruption of imperialism, imposed law constructs. Anybody want to tell us how you process that, and I'll tell you my thoughts on it? Anybody? As you hear this, yeah. I have a question. If holiness is healthiness, right. and Jesus is the remedy, the more we drink of Jesus, the more we incorporate Jesus, the healthier we get. Correct. So there's nothing, I can't do anything if I have sin in me. And that's, I grew up like that, thinking, you know, you got to do this, you got to do this, you got to do this, you got to study more, you got to keep this, you got to keep that. And that just brings like refusal. So I'm going to read this paragraph again. We know that God calls us to keep his law. The question arises, though, why should we keep his law if we can't be saved by it? Can we be saved by law keeping? 
The, the, even so, even so, no, I think you'll see in a second. The answer is found in the idea of holiness. So if we understand holiness to mean healthiness, then why would we want to live in harmony with the laws of health? Because it's the only way to be healthy. Likewise, it's the only way to be spiritually healthy. And then the third paragraph, and this we're going to kind of bring it home, to live spiritually filled lives means that we live accordance to the law of God. The law is unchanging rule of his holiness. The standard of that law set. The standard that that law sets does not change any more than God himself. Jesus affirmed that the law is not abolished, but that every part is to be fulfilled. The law, to keep the law, is not legalism. It is faithfulness. The law does not save us. It can never. It never can. The law is never our way to salvation. Rather, it is the path of the saved. Think that through. What is a way? What is a path? I mean, this is doublespeak that you get when you have legal ways of understanding things. So, I don't think the word choice here is very good, but let's make it very clear so everybody understands. If a person has a terminal illness, they have a terminal illness. Pick your terminal illness. An infection, metastatic cancer, it doesn't matter. They're terminal. The laws of health cannot save them. They need a remedy that addresses whatever that infection is, whatever the terminal state is. They need a remedy. However, partaking of the remedy that puts the cancer into remission that clears up the infection does not do away with the laws of health and does not mean that we are now free to live in violations of the laws of health. Does everybody get that? So this is the difference. When we put holiness, substitute healthiness, it becomes very clear. We cannot be saved from sin by working to keep the laws of God because we have a terminal condition that no matter how hard we work to keep it, we're still terminal. We need a remedy from Jesus Christ that he provides. However, having accepted the remedy and partaken of the remedy does not free us from living in harmony with the laws of health. It puts us back so we can live in harmony with his laws, his spiritual laws, his design laws. And if we decide after partaking of the remedy, hey, my terminal condition's in remission, I had cancer. I took a, a, a chemotherapy. My cancer's down to remission. Now I can go out and smoke as many cigarettes as I want. No, you can't. You're going to get cancer again. Okay, you're going to you're going to get terminal again. And that's what it's saying here. That's the balance between the remedy Jesus provides and the law. The law doesn't save. Jesus saves. But we can never be saved by violating the law, even if we claim we're partaking of the remedy. You see a beautiful balance. Healthiness clears it up. Design law clears it up. Gracious Heavenly Father. We thank you so much that you are a creator and you've constructed your universe to operate in harmony with you. And your character of love is beautiful. And it's the protocols on all of which everything you've built has, has been designed to work. Yet, on earth, your design has become corrupted and infected with a selfish, antagonistic principle that destroys. And so much of, of your church has been infected with ideas about you that, that cause people to be afraid of you. We ask that your spirit will be poured out on those here, those who listen uh, abroad, those who love this picture of you and are sharing it, that you will empower us and open avenues that this message will go forward to free more hearts and minds and that you will come soon, we pray in your holy name. Amen. Amen.